going to bring up uh, Ray and Janie. We'll talk a little bit more about them tomorrow. Um, these guys, they're, they're friends, um, truly mentors in, in my life, in my wife's life. Um, they have uh, three sons and a daughter, just like we have three sons and a daughter, and uh, a few years ahead of us, and so we're able to watch their taillights uh, in the way that godliness is walked out uh, in pastoral ministry, uh, in being a godly wife and godly mom, and now gr- godly grandmother and grandfather. And um, these guys are um, some of the most humble people for being incredibly accomplished, um, and uh, so I'm not going to go on and on about them, um, but there's, I mean, go to, go to Amazon, and there's some, there's some books that you can get uh, from them. Um, appreciate that. Um, in fact, there's, there might even be a treat uh, tomorrow that, that comes uh, from, from their hearts. But um, uh, Ray, if a lot of you guys have uh, the ESV study Bible. Um, Ray actually wrote the notes in Isaiah in that. So um, this is a, a godly, humble couple that clearly know the gospel, but they, all know, they also know the passion of romance and how to marriage those, marry those things together. And so I couldn't be more thrilled to be able to sit under them uh, this weekend, and I'm doubly thrilled that you guys get to, uh, get to experience, my friends. So let me pray over you guys, and, um, and we'll move forward. Okay. Yep. Jesus, um, thank you for what you're already doing, what you're going to do and accomplish through my brother and my sister. Bless us immensely in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm Ray, and this is Jannie, and I am crazy in love with this woman. Thank you. <laughs> we just celebrated our 41st anniversary in December, so we're, uh, and she still likes me, the last I checked, and I'm very grateful. Um, we, um, I, I want to introduce her in a, in a special way. Rather than tell you all about her, just show you something about her. So if we can run that video right now, that would be so great. Okay? Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks. It says in the Bible uh, that her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. So I just enjoy, uh, I did that on YouTube for uh, Valentine's Day two years ago. And surprise Janie with that. That was really fun. It's a great thing to do, guys, on Valentine's Day. If you've got a blog, you know, just don't tell her. Get out photographs and so forth and celebrate your wife. So we're really glad to be with you. Anyway, that's my Janie. And, uh, what can I say? And let me, let me tell you about that deer. Okay. This, no, they, the guys want to hear about this. Um, it was the first time she'd ever used her 270 Winchester short magnum, her new deer rifle that I got for her. And so we're sitting in this two-person stand in Georgia, outside Augusta. And then this, this field is in front of us, about 130 yards away. A doe steps out. And I'm thinking, you know, oh, Janie's going to go, oh, Ray, what do I do now? Uh-uh. <laughs> Boom! With authority. And she drops that deer right there. Right on the shoulder. ladies, right? We're not going to let those men bring in all the meat. We're going to get some ourselves. (laughs) Oh, that was fun. (laughs) Well, thank you, Ray. I don't have as uh, wonderful an introduction for him, but we have been married 41 years, as Ray told you. We met at Wheaton College September 12th, 1968. We know the spot where I first laid. Just after the last Ice Age. That's right. (laughs) 
We have four married children, and our ninth grandbaby's due on Tuesday. In California, I'll be flying out to help our sweet daughter-in-law and son. And uh, right now, we're ministering in Nashville, Tennessee, where Ray is pastor of Emmanuel Church and Acts 29 Church, sister church with yours. And we've been there in Nashville nine years. We're glad to be here with you this weekend. And we have several goals that we hope would be very meaningful to you um, as we come together. One is to see the Lord in a new way. Everything positive and life-giving happens when we start seeing Jesus with new eyes. We see things about him we hadn't known before. Mm-hmm. Or we rediscover things about him that we had known and had forgotten and maybe stopped believing. Yes. So, uh, for example, uh, Romans fifteen thirteen is one of my favorite verses. Now, the, may the God of hope, what a great name for God. And every marriage needs hope. May the God of you, you have to believe, and the Lord wants you to believe, that your marriage is, guys, your best sex is in your 60s. Ray, we're not talking about sex till tomorrow. Give him a chance to get us, know <laughs> us a little bit. Well, <gasps> it just gets better. Your whole marriage gets better. You suffer together. You win together. Um, and each year it gets more profound and more wonderful. That's why he's called the God of hope. And that's his will for you, his desire for you. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we see the Lord in a new way, we see him as the God of hope. He is not against you. He doesn't look at your marriage and despise it. That is so wrong. He created romance. He is the original romantic. He's committed to your marriage. And that is so filled with hope. So to see the Lord with a new way, a new eyes. The second goal that we have for our time together is that your romance will be refreshed. The Bible is unashamedly pro-romance. I mean, think of all the love stories in it. Think of all the erotic passages. Proverbs 5, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Or Solomon, Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 4, says that when I found him, I would not let him go. (laughs) Spoken from a wife's viewpoint. The Bible is full of romance, and we want you to leave tomorrow afternoon with your romance refreshed, renewed, because God is the God of romance. Yes. And the third goal is that um, every married couple here would walk away from this time together with greater vision for how God can use you in your marriage. Your marriage, the blessing of God coming down upon you and your spouse does not end with you too, but flows through you out to the lives of others, beginning with your very own children. For example, the scripture says, we will not hide the gospel from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders 
that he has done. I'm so grateful. I grew up in a home where Jesus was Lord. And it was, it was, a, it was not a perfect home. We had many sins and weaknesses. But there was a pervasive sense in our home that God is good. That that is, in fact, the deepest, profoundest reality we're swimming in in this universe, the goodness of God. And my dad especially set that tone in our home. And I grew up just with this constant awareness that life can be embraced because God is good. It sweetened everything. And so my parents imparted to me, they told the gospel to me. My dad led me to the Lord when I was six years old at the breakfast table. Um, he gave on my uh, 16th, 17th birthday, he gave me a Bible and wrote it, inscribed it in the front, saying, this book is your mother and my dearest treasure. Be a student of the Bible, and your life will be full of blessing. Now, every dad's got to say that to his son. You've got your children for probably 18 years under your roof, three meals a day. You have ample opportunity, dads, to say that kind of thing to your children. And, uh, and in that way, the blessing flows through you to them and through them to thousands of people. Your marriage is significant. Your marriage is powerful for eternal good in this world. And to have a vision for that and to set a goal, we're thinking of asking you tomorrow during lunch, I wonder if you'd be willing, that you together as uh, two spouses would think through together what would be a goal for our marriage we would like to resolve upon before we leave the conference at the end of tomorrow, a goal for 2013 some new step we would like to take that might even be scary, something that, that we've thought about doing, we'd like to do, we've never quite gotten around to doing it, but doggone it, the time has come, we're going to do this. So begin to think about that now. So those are our goals. All right. Let me turn it over to you okay. for the rest. Okay. okay, babe, thank you so much, darling. Um, let's do this right now. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Thank you, darling. You're awesome. Genesis chapter 2 defines marriage. There's a great deal of controversy in our society today about the definition of marriage. But marriage did not just sort of pop up to the surface in the course of human social evolution. Um, democracy did, and I happen to think democracy is a great idea. But it's something we invented. I think it was the Greeks, and I, I believe the 4th or 5th century B.C., who created this concept of democracy. Uh, but marriage is not like that. Marriage came down from above. God gave us marriage. And... And not only does God define marriage, but define, he defines what marriage is for. One of the things the current debate about the meaning of marriage doesn't uh, include, the debate is focused on what marriage is. It is assumed, not discussed, what marriage is for. 
But what marriage is for really explains what marriage is. In Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5, the Bible defines how God gave and shaped marriage. And one of the great things about it, guys, is marriage came from the Garden of Eden. Marriage is one of the few things we have left from the Garden of Eden. It is a great privilege to be married. And maybe uh, this weekend you need with your spouse to go back to that, to your own personal Garden of Eden where you guys fell in love. What was it that you noticed about the other that just knocked you flat? There was something that triggered a spark in you that you'd never felt before. Maybe you need to go back and say, uh, I want to recover that. Let's go back to that place. And these layers of resentment, layers of disappointment, let's just peel that away. Let's go back to the Eden God gave us originally. And let's re-experience that and be comforted and encouraged in that way. And so in heart and mind right now, we want to go back to the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. This is in a perfect world that only God could give. One man and one woman falling in love together. And let's find out what God tells us about marriage in this beautiful, unfallen, unbroken human situation. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Eve does not yet exist. And God gives Adam a job to do, to be the custodian and the guardian and the developer of the Garden of Eden. The implication, as I reflect upon this passage, is that as Adam stewarded the Garden of Eden, it would spread through succeeding generations and eventually cover the whole world. And the whole world would be the kingdom of God, a beautiful, human, safe garden where people can thrive and walk with God and enjoy one another, and it would be a bunch of married people. So, That trust is given to Adam. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Now just stop right there. The sentence goes on, but we'll come back. Notice that is God's first command. And it's so positive. There is Adam in this perfect Garden of Eden, and God says to him, Adam, take a look. Do you like it? Go for it. It's all yours. You may surely eat from every tree that is in the garden. That's a very strongly stated command in the Hebrew text. Now we continue, verse 17. But one restriction of the tree, singular, of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God is saying, Adam, I want you to enjoy and make the most of all this opportunity in life. There is one area I cordon off and regard as my own to remind you that you are not God and I am God. And to remind you that I will define for you what is good and evil. I will define for you what enriches life and what destroys life. 
I want you to trust me, and I want you to listen to me. You don't define that for yourself. I know where the landmines are. You don't. So let me guide you through reality for your own joy and dignity and wisdom and so forth. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Now, wait a minute. Hold everything. This is in the Garden of Eden, guys. This is a perfect world. And God looks at something in the Garden of Eden. Sin doesn't enter the world until the next chapter. He looks at something in the Garden of Eden, and he says, oh, this is not good. And there are two ways in biblical Hebrew to say something is not good. You can say something is eintov, meaning it just it lacks positive goodness. It's just sort of neutral. It lies there in the bowl without any snap, crackle, and pop. Or you can say something is lotov, meaning it is bad. It is negative. It's a minus factor. And that's the wording here. This is bad. It is not good. What? That the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Huh. My wife is two things at once. She's a helper. To what end? Help me do what? Obey and serve God. He already gave Adam a job to do. Advance the purposes of God. Push the kingdom forward. It's filled with dignity and purpose. It, it, It will matter forever. You matter. Your existence matters. Your husband matters. Your wife matters. What you're doing together matters. A helper fit for him. So this is not a helper inferior to him. This is a helper equal to him on his level. She is a helper, and she is fit for him as his corresponding equal on the face of the earth. Verse 19. Now out of the, Lord, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, that is really weird. God says, I see the one flaw in this perfect Garden of Eden. Remember in chapter 1 of Genesis, God saw what he had made and behold, it was very good. Oh, but here's something that's not good. And instead of fixing it, God um, gives Adam a job to do that seems to have no relevance at all to the need God himself just observed. God calls Adam to name the animals. Now, what is this about? Naming in the biblical world is bringing under dominion. For example, later in the biblical story, when a foreign king conquers an army and takes the king of the defeated army as his captive, he renames him, gives him a new name to say, you're under my authority now. So God was increasing, by bringing these animals, God was increasing Adam's authority inviting him to bring these animals under conceptual control 
by identifying them, observing them, and naming them. So in English, names are not so meaningful. I mean, I don't know why we call a cat a cat. I don't know what the word C-A-T has to do with that little, you know, furry creature. Uh, that's, that is not a name. That's a label. That's an arbitrary label. But um, a name like hippopotamus is not just uh, uh, an arbitrary label. It actually means something. It comes from two Greek words, and it means river horse. And you, when, when you look at a hippopotamus and what it does, you can see why it's named that. So it's not just a label. That's actually a fitting name. That's the kind of thing Adam is doing with all these animals. So here comes, here comes a, you know, a hippopotamus, and it, you know, by God's command, it sort of lumbers past Adam and stops there, and he looks it over, and he says, okay, do whatever it is you do, big creature. And, the, and the, there are rivers here. So he goes down in the river and does what hippopotami do in the river and so forth and comes back, and, and Adam says, okay, Hippopotamus. You've you got to be a hippopotamus, river horse, because he just named the horse. See how this works out? It's perfect. And uh, so the, the hippopotamus, you know, plods off with its new name. He did that with all the animals. Adam was a genius. So off plods the, the last animal, right? He's done his job. He, they, they all have their new names. That means he has studied each and every one. He's looked at its habits and properties and its character. He's thought about it. And so as it, the, last Adam, uh, the last animal uh, uh, leaves, Adam is looking at all those animals out there and continuing to think, always thinking. And uh, he notices something. Well, this is really odd. They're pairing off. And they're mating And he finally gets it. For crying out loud, there's nobody around here like me. I do not have a mate. I do not have a friend. I am alone. This is not good. And he finally sees what God saw. God prepared Adam for the most precious earthly gift God would ever give him. Your wife is under Christ, under Christ, your most precious gift from God. And um, I wonder if this isn't why we guys sort of come alive, enter into puberty, I don't know, when does that happen? 10, 12, something like that? And we have to wait, what, 10, 15 years maybe to get married? That's a long wait. Adam understood what we suffer. (laughs) So he says... That's why he says in verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And I think of, you know, Etta James right now and her great song, At Last. Do you know what that song I'm talking about? Um, I wouldn't dare try to sing it. But there's a reason why people sing songs like that, At Last. I remember seeing a photograph album of my parents on on their honeymoon in 1946. And there's a picture of them in the Shenandoah Valley uh, outside Virginia, in Virginia, and the caption, they're, they're standing together looking out over the Shenandoah Valley, and the caption underneath the, the picture is, Together at Last. That's what we feel. That's what Adam felt. It was God's goodwill 
for this joy to explode in his heart. So for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. He feels that ache inside. He feels incomplete. He is lonely. It's a good feeling. Verse 21. It deepens us and matures us and prepares us. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And you might, if you're looking at the English Standard Version, you might see that the alternative translation to he made into a woman Down in the margin, it says he built into a woman. When early in chapter 2, when God created Adam and made him of the dust of the ground, the verb is yatsar, which is used elsewhere in the Old Testament for a potter shaping um, a clay vessel. So, guys, we're just clay pots. But when God made Eve, he built her. And I'll just let you fill in the blanks and your imagination right there as to what that might imply. She is a work of art. So um, I'm going to hold this, I guess, in my hands. God performs the first surgical operation. He says to Adam, okay, um, Adam, I know what you're feeling inside. You've discovered something. You need a friend. Um... And I understand what's going on inside you, and so I want you to trust me. And I just want you to lie down here and go to sleep. And God touches him, and Adam falls into this very deep and profound sleep. God opens up his side, takes that flesh out, and like Jesus multiplying the loaves and fish to feed so many, God takes that flesh and just multiplies it and builds it up into this absolutely drop-dead gorgeous woman. And every woman is gorgeous. And there she is, the very first woman. And she blinks and opens her eyes, and she's very dear, very beautiful, very tender, very vulnerable. And God says to her, um, Sweetheart, I just want you to go step behind that bush right there for just a minute. It's okay. Um, I'll, I'll come get you in just a moment. And she says, okay. And she goes over there. And God bends down and kind of shakes Adam's shoulder and says, okay, Adam, wake up now. Adam wakes up and he stands up and his wound has been completely healed. He's, he doesn't understand what's happened yet. And uh, the Lord says to him, um, I've got one more creature for you to name. Just one more. I'm very interested to see what you'll name this last creature I've just made. So just stay here. And God goes and gets Eve, and like the father of the bride, I'm sure he takes her gently by the arm, brings her out, (laughs) <laughs> and Adam just flips. He just, I mean, it's love at first sight. Bam, he is slain. He is smitten. His heart is absolutely undone. He rejoices. 
Here suddenly is another human being, his equal. He's not threatened that she is his equal. He rejoices that she is his equal. He doesn't want another animal. He wants a friend. God gives him a friend. And so we come to verse 23. Then the man said, and he doesn't say this to Eve. He doesn't say, you are at last bone of my bones. He is speaking to God. He is praising God. He's speaking about the woman in the third person to God. These are the first recorded human words in all of history. And it's a little piece of poetry. Love poetry. This, O God, at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, unlike all those sorry animals. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Intuitively, he understood who she was, where she came from, why she mattered, and what she was there for, to be his friend. Now, at this point, I think of it this way, and I have a very cartoonish imagination, and so just work with me on this. I think of us looking at Genesis 2 kind of like watching a DVD of the beginning of the world. Moses wrote this. We're sitting in Moses' front room on the sofa. He's playing the DVD on on his television. At the end of verse 23, he reaches over, grabs the remote, and puts it on pause. And everything on the screen freezes. He turns to us, post-fall people sitting on his sofa in this broken world of today, telling us about what happened in the Garden of Eden way back then. And he says, now here's something I want you to understand, guys. What happened back then in that pristine world before all these layers of complication we added in, it is still relevant to us today. It still matters to us today. Here's how the Garden of Eden remains relevant in your life today. Verse 24, and this is the definition of marriage. Therefore, the word therefore tells us now it's arcing over into our world today, showing the relevance. Therefore, a man today in this world shall leave his father and mother. That's totally radical. That was said in a very traditional cultural moment where parents and grandparents dominated the younger generation permanently. The Bible's radical. The Bible says no more of that. Your primary relationship is no longer with your parents and grandparents and ancestors. Now a man's primary relationship is with his wife. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife in every sense, both literal and metaphorical, And they shall become one flesh. Now that's marriage. In just two simple words, one flesh. So one flesh is like this, guys. Both words matter. One flesh. Think of a circle. There's inside that circle, that circle of marriage, one man, one woman for one lifetime. On their wedding day, they step inside that circle. Everyone else on the face of the earth is outside that circle, including even their kids. 
when your kids are young, one of the big challenges is to keep your marriage. <laughs> to keep, see, that's your Garden of Eden inside that circle. To cultivate, to enjoy all your days till death do you part. And you love your kids very much, but they don't live inside that circle. You two share something you share with no one else on the planet. The one flesh union. One flesh. One meaning two selfish me's start learning how to be one joyous us. (laughs) And that takes a lifetime. And we never finish learning. Two selfish me's come together and find out by God's grace what it actually feels like and looks like to be one joyous us. So I, I deeply needed to get married. I, I, I had no idea how selfish I was. I never intended to be self-centered. I was born self I came out of the womb, clueless, self-centered, narcissistic me. And I deeply needed to get married to grow up and find out what it means to be a part of a joyous us. So, one flesh means, the one part means one reputation, um, one mission, uh, one suffering, one joy, one bed, one checkbook, one church, and so forth. At every level, the two me's come together and find out what a joyous us can be. And that's the one part. Then the flesh part is, it's not one spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 says we're one spirit with the risen Christ. That will never end. Jesus will love you forever if you've given your heart to him. If you've stood with Jesus and said, I do, the way you see at a wedding, and you've made definite your acceptance of Jesus, he has so promised and committed himself to you, he will never stop loving you. There is no till death us do part with Jesus. That's one spirit. But in this world, one flesh means it's a mortal relationship. It is until we die. It's flesh. It belongs to this world. It is not permanent. It's not eternal. But it is a picture of the eternal. Many people that you know throughout the course of your life together as a married couple, neighbors, family, colleagues at work, and so forth, they will never go to church. But they will still see the gospel by knowing you. This is why the devil hates your marriage, because it has the aroma of Christ all over it. Your children will see Christ in your marriage. They will see the sacrificial love of Christ in the husband, and they will see the joyous, wholehearted deference of the church in the wife and the mom and the Lord will be all over it. So even though it's a relationship of one flesh, it has eternal impact. Your marriage so matters. So um, 
That's what marriage is. One man, one woman, one lifetime, one flesh. Everything is shared as long as you both shall live. I deeply needed to make that terrifying commitment. I was scared during our uh, wedding ceremony. I mean, I was nervous. I was very excited and very happy, but I realized uh, I'm biting off more than I can chew. This is a huge commitment I'm making. I'm not adequate. And the Lord said, I know you're not adequate. I'm going to give you this absolutely wonderful woman anyway. You don't deserve her. I'm giving you what you don't deserve. And I will sustain you in your uh, love for her. And he has. Okay. So verse 24, guys, is a parenthesis. The DVD is paused. Moses explains to us the relevance of what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve to us today. We, re- we retell the story of Adam and Eve every time we get married. We re-experience imperfectly but really something of the Garden of Eden when we get married. So finally... He hits the remote again as we come to verse 25, and the action picks up again on the TV screen. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It is so wonderful (laughs) that there is one human being on the face of the earth who knows me absolutely. One human being with whom I am completely vulnerable and she does not shame me. In every other relationship, there's less I can be certain of and less I can count on. I've got a lot of wonderful relationships, and it's a privilege to be with you right now. But with her, I can count on acceptance. I can count on dignity. What a, and I deeply need that, and she deeply needs that. She has every right to look to me with the expectation she will never be shamed. She will never be made to feel small and embarrassed. But I will treat her gently because she is, her heart is delicate. And I would never want her to feel embarrassed with me. Not with me. Because we're inside that circle. That's a little bit of the Garden of Eden right there. I need that. She needs that. And we deeply minister to each other in that way. That is what you share with your spouse. And you can go back to the Garden of Eden this weekend. You can say, honey, I, 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 I never saw it that way before. I didn't understand. That was what the Lord wants me to bring to you that kind of acceptance. I just want you to know, I'm sorry. And I want to learn how to do that, starting right now, God helping me. Now, here's the last thing I want to point out about Genesis 2. 
then we're going to get ready for communion and be with the Lord himself. God gave Adam a job to do in the Garden of Eden. Work is not a curse. Work predates sin and the curse. Work is a part of the, it's a gift of the Lord. And God puts a a mission in front of every man. And this is a, I want to ask the wives tonight to receive, here's an insight into your husband. There's something inside your man that's so down deep inside him, he can't even take it out. It is a sense that he has a mountain to climb in this life. He's got a challenge to meet. He's got a job to fulfill, a mission. He feels it. He wants to fulfill his destiny. And he loves that. It's not easy. But he's just got a drive inside. And this is a great thing. God has touched your husband with this deep passion to accomplish. But your husband is also a fallen man and a broken man as I am. And there is a question at the core of his being, even as there is this sense of challenge and sense of destiny. And the question is, am I man enough for this challenge? Will I fulfill my destiny? Can I do this? I look at that mountain God wants me to climb, the money I need to make, the responsibilities I need to fulfill, and so forth. Man alive, with everything against me, am I going to be able to do this? Now, the day you got married, let me say this to every wife, God gave you a great privilege in life, and that is every day to communicate to your husband, I so respect you. I so believe in you. The Lord is with you. Go for it. Go for it. And if sometimes it doesn't work out well, I don't even care. I'm still your best friend. And we're going to win together and we're going to lose together. And the Lord is with us and the Lord is with you and I believe in you. And if you'll do that, communicate to that to your husband. You'll, you will minister to him at a profound level of his being because that's inside him. It's not going away. It's just there. And the Lord wants you to be aware of that and sensitive to that and caring for your husband in that way. Now, let me speak to the guys. God created this precious woman, Eve, for Adam, brought her to him, and he enthused about her. Every woman is precious. Every woman is made by God. Every woman is dear to his heart and beautiful in his sight. But in this world of brokenness, there's also a question down deep inside every woman, every wife, and that is, Am I what he wanted? Does he rejoice over me or does he have to settle for me? 
Do I delight him? Has he actually given me his heart? He gives me his paycheck. He gives me his bed. Has he really given me his heart? That is what a woman needs, a wife. The heart of her husband. And guys, the day you got married, God gave you a job for the rest of your days. As long as you both shall live. And that is to communicate every day in words and attitudes and deeds and gestures and caresses and gifts. Darling, (laughs) you thrill me. I love you. I give you my heart. I love the uh, two words in Ephesians 5. He nourishes and cherishes his wife. Cherishes. Communicate to your wife in ways that will connect with her heart how you cherish her, and you will be ministering to her deepest being at a, in a profound way. That will resonate with something at her very core being. She wants to know how you feel. And, uh, and you know, guys, I'm, I'm grateful. We don't have to be geniuses at this, and we can say to our wives, honey, I don't even know how to say these things. I feel like a klutz. But I wonder if you would just be patient while I learn how to tell you how I really feel. And I know she will be patient. Well, those are your two primary takeaways from Genesis 2, okay? One flesh, the definition of marriage, and then how to care for each other. What's going on inside your wife? What's going on inside your husband? And how you can touch that deep part of your spouse in a way that will really help. Um, I think again of that verse that they were both naked and not ashamed. And of course, I can't help but think of the cross. On the cross, Jesus was naked and utterly shamed so that we would be clothed in the sight of God and never shamed. That horrible exposure that we feel being held up to derision, held up to shame, He willingly accepted that and experienced that in our place on the cross so that we could run to him in our shame and our failure and our sin. And he would put his righteousness around us and say, you know, we're not even going to talk about that anymore. Never again. You are forgiven. You are accepted. With me, you are accepted. You may not know what to expect in any other relationship, but with this relationship with me, Jesus says, I want you to know what you can expect. Dignity and acceptance. Because at the cross, he was naked and utterly shamed. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper now and be reminded of that. You know, the Lord gave us the actual water of baptism and the actual wine and bread of the Lord's Supper, these physical, tangible things, because he was saying to us, I want you to know that my love is that real. 
It's as real as something you can put in your mouth. And we're going to enjoy that and experience that now. So I'm going to pray in just a moment, and then Dave, if you would come and lead us, be all right? Let's pray together. Why don't you just take your spouse's hand right now? Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for your love and your comfort to come down upon each couple here, even at this moment, to take away all shame, to take away a sense of failure and defeat, and to rekindle a sense of acceptance and dignity and hope. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for this privilege of your supper and these tokens of your dying love for the undeserving. We are the undeserving. You are the Savior. We rejoice in you. We receive you now in your holy name. Amen.